Welcome to Philly Prime. I'm Dave Schratweiser, and we have a great show for you today. Uh, it's coming from my hometown out on Long Island. It's a great organized crime mob story that uh, I'm sure will uh, captivate you. And uh, joining me on the show is Sandra S.J. Petty from Newsday, an investigative reporter. Uh, she's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in the past. She's a headliner award winner. She was part of a Great documentary on John Sonny Francais, who we're going to talk about today. She has a new book coming out in March called Sonny, uh, The Last of the Old-Time Mafia Bosses. Sonny Francais was an underboss with the Colombo crime family. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're also joined by a good friend of mine, Dan Pearson, who wrote uh, and co-authored the, the Last Don Standing about Ralph Natale, the boss in Philadelphia for some time, a producer, a guy of many talents who knew the Francais family for 40 years, and uh, he's going to add some stuff there too, and it should be a great conversation. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Sandra, let's start off with uh, why you kind of decided to do the book. I mean, this guy's a fascinating story, lived to be 103 years old, spent 50 years in prison. Uh, uh, everything I've seen that you've done about him is captivating. Well, you just said it. He was a fascinating guy. And before he died at the age of 103, right be at the beginning of the pandemic, he gave me six interviews. He told me stories of his life because he wanted his story told. And you actually went into a, a nursing home, I guess, or assisted living home where he was staying and it was, interviewed him. At, at the end of his life, Sonny lived in a nursing home. He got out of prison at age 100, the oldest uh, prisoner in the federal prison system in June of 2017. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I got interested in the story because he was from Long Island. He was our guy. And I wanted to talk to him. If, for he folks who don't know, in, Newsday is a Long Island newspaper, uh, been around for right. years, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper. When I was a kid, I wanted to work for Newsday. And Sandra <laughs> works for that newspaper and is still a great newspaper today. Thank you. So in any case, Sonny moved to a nursing home because no one in his large family was either willing or able to take him home. And at the end of his life, he had a litany of physical ailments, you know, a pacemaker, one kidney, blind in one eye. He was in a wheelchair, but he was entirely lucid. He was smart. He was funny. And he was a great storyteller. Damn. He was the kind of guy you'd want to invite over for a backyard barbecue until you realized you wouldn't want him near anyone you loved. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, let me ask you, you've been around the Francais family for a long time. Uh, why is he such a captivating story, as Sandra has told us? <laughs> you know, when people say, when they, when they refer to him, the first word that comes out of their mouth is legendary. Um, when he spoke to you, he spoke, you know, he, he spoke definitively, and he lived definitively. And what you said to him, you had to be careful with your words because he held you to them. So everything with him was definitive. Um, even if he liked you, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. If you gave your word, you told him he was going to do something, you may, not, you may have been speaking and passing, but he was speaking and counting. And when he was counting, he was counting what you were going to give him. 
Yeah. And if you didn't give him, there was going to be accountability. So you, you just did not speak to him. Everything with Sonny was money. Money, money, money. The payoff, the payoff, the payoff. And he wasn't paying you. You were paying him. Yeah. And um, I got along with him extraordinarily well. You know, the stories he would tell me, we'd walk and talk. Uh, I can't tell you how many uh, FBI surveillances I've, can't, I've come up on, you know, the greeting with the hug and the kiss. And uh, it, was, it was even a little different for me how people perceived me getting the hug and the kiss from this guy, from Sonny Francis, from his son, from the other people around. But he was always the center, even if he was in prison. We waited for his phone call. Hmm. You know, if you visited him, yeah. he, he was always omnipresent. He was never, he was, no matter what prison he was in, he was never th that far away. Yeah. Sandra, His reach was the reach. Sandra, can remember I that ask? time go, go you were having lunch with someone and you got a call? <laughs> yes. oh, that's Sorry, Dave. I just love this story. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a guy named Maurice. Maurice owned a, um, a studio lot in Brooklyn, Greenpoint. And so, uh, I was in the East Village having having uh, having a, a a meal with a with a guy I was doing business with, and all of a sudden, this guy Maurice is lording over my back. I'm like, and Maurice is a big guy, and I'm like, the hell are you doing here? How'd you find me? He said, you got a phone call. <laughs> phone call from who? He hands me the phone. It's the old man. Hello. In prison. Yeah, from prison. <laughs> he called me from prison. Hello. Listen, this guy's with me. Get him some, get some rap acts in there. Let them shoot their videos there. And if he doesn't make it, because he owes me money, if he doesn't make the payment, leave him on the floor. <laughs> there you go. Sandra, can you tell me, uh, for, for those who don't know Sonny's reputation in the New York mob, he was the uh, underboss of the Colombo crime family, uh, kind of ruled with a uh, pretty strong hand. Lived in Roslyn, New, uh, New York, which is on Long Island up on the North Shore, uh, in a regular neighborhood, just like everybody else. Uh, his kids lived there. His, his wife lived there. But the other side of him uh, could be treacherous. Am I right about that? You are absolutely right. Sonny was revered on the street because he let his guys make money. But he was also feared. He was believed to have killed or ordered the murders of 40 to 50 people. And in the 1960s, he was the prime target of law enforcement. J. Edgar Hoover was said to be willing to give his left for Sonny. Mm. Uh, and it was borne out in the facts because in 1966, Sonny was indicted by four different law enforcement agencies, mm. Queens, Manhattan, Nassau, and the feds, all in a single year. I've never seen anything like that. Mm. He was a top priority of law enforcement. And yet, he was a very charming guy. He had a beautiful wife and children. They're all attractive, intelligent, engaging people. He, when he went to the Copacabana, people would stop and look at him. Yeah. They wouldn't look at Joe Colombo. Yeah, handsome fellow. Of course became... 
Tell me about that. His looks were uh, notorious. Uh, when he, even when he walked into court, dressed to the nines with the tie and the suit on, he looked like a million bucks. If you see, have you seen? If you've seen the pictures of him, and you have them in your in the book, uh, he's a handsome looking dude. And you know, he said to me, he said, "I never thought I was that good looking." <laughs> and he said, and women would come after me. I'd have to beat them off with a baseball bat. He said, I never thought I was that good looking, but he said, I knew how to dress. Yeah. And, you know, he had a cashmere overcoat that he would always have draped over his arm to hide the handcuffs. Yeah. He said to me, of course, and that was when cashmere was expensive. <laughs> hey, Dan, uh, your personal impressions of uh, of Sonny like that, uh, he could really, uh, you've been, he's been mentioned in 40 or 50 murders, as Sandra has said, um, serious guy here. <laughs> serious is an understatement. Listen, he controlled the music industry part of the film industry, TV industry, you name an industry that made money, he was there. He's extraordinarily smart. When I say extraordinarily smart, extraordinarily smart. And um, <clears throat> he knew how to earn. And he put his people out to earn. And uh, if you were around him and you earned, it was always wise to make sure that he earned. So because I was able to use his name and I don't look like the average Italian person, using his name was better than uh, L.F. Hutton. It was better than American Express Black Card. I got into places and did deals with people that I would never been able to ever meet. He was good to me. He was great to me. Miss Francis was great to me. The Francis family was great to me. I was loyal to them and they were loyal to me. And, you know, so I have a, a very warm spot in my heart for them. But at the same time, I never forgot who I was dealing with because I got on the wrong side one time. And um, it almost cost me my life. And I didn't know it. And, uh, when I got the pass, I got the phone call while I was sitting down eating dinner. And it was like nothing ever happened, but I was fortunate in that regard. But, um, you know, you could be in a room with four people, three people know what's going on and one doesn't. Yeah. And then what happens is now it's three people know what's going on. One guy brings it up. Now you got, now you're down to two people. So that's the life. That was the life. Hey, Sandra. Sandra, could you um, walk me through some of Sonny's uh, high-profile friends? Um, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, well, Fra others. Well, There's Frank a whole Sinatra, bunch of stuff yes. you guys talked about in the Newsday stuff that was uh, incredible about his relationship with those folks back in the day. Well, he was, yes, he knew Frank Sinatra, of course, and they often were at the Copacabana in the 50s and the 60s when it was the hottest club in New York City together. And Sinatra would call out Sonny's name, and Sonny wouldn't turn around. He wouldn't give him the pleasure. And I once asked him, I said, did you know Frank Sinatra? And he said, you asked the question the wrong way. You should have asked, did Frank Sinatra know Sonny Francis? 
So there was always that kind of jousting going on. And yeah. one night while uh, Sinatra was performing at the Copacabana, Ava Gardner came to watch him. And Sonny struck up a conversation with her and started making out with her in a back room. <laughs> I don't think they ever fully consummated the relationship because he didn't say they did. And he was very open about saying, talking about the women he slept with. And he slept with many great beauties. Uh, Jane Mansfield, whose daughter Mariska Hargitay is a star on Law & Order. Um, Dagmar, who was a great singer, a, a great performer. I'm not sure she was a great singer in the 50s. Um, he also claimed to have had an affair with Marilyn Monroe. Mm. And he talked about this one night, I think it was in May of 1963, the famous night when Jack Kennedy was having a fundraiser at Madison Square Garden, and Marilyn Monroe came out in this very sheer, beaded, tight gown to sing him Happy Birthday. Well, while everyone was watching her sing, Sonny was on the floor of Madison Square Garden trying to hide from Joe DiMaggio. Joe <laughs> DiMaggio was following him around because he wanted to talk to him yeah. about his affair with Marilyn Monroe. And Sonny was so ashamed. He said, Joe DiMaggio was my hero. I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't talk to him. And it was the only time in all the hours that I talked to him that he ever admitted to being ashamed of something. Yeah. Sonny wasn't ashamed of much in his life. Yeah. He was an unabashed bad guy. Yeah, I could tell that from uh, watching some of the stuff you guys have done on YouTube uh, with the Newsday documentary. Uh, uh, not apologetic about too much stuff. No. No. Dan, uh, you've you've got a couple stories like that as well, I'm, I'm sure, from uh, Sonny's days out on uh, the party circuit. Well, <laughs> actually... <clears throat> I wasn't on the party circuit with him. Yeah. Most of my most of my dealings with Sonny was meeting people. Uh meeting people and uh keeping an eye out. I mean, you know, one day we're at uh here's one. We're at a diner in Glen Cove. Me, Sonny, son John. And uh, a friend of mine, Philly Caruso, who recently passed. And um, I took off my pinky ring, pinky diamond ring, give it to Sonny. He just came home. There's two FBI agents to the right watching us. So this young woman walks in with this knock-around-looking guy. And the, and the young woman's father had been Robert D. Uh, D.B. DiBernardo, who, who Gotti had killed. So she saunters up to Sonny, attractive young woman. So you know, he engages and he's smiling, he's laughing, talking. And now here comes the knockaround guy who looked like he just met Mickey Mantle. So he comes over. Instead of just saying hello, he engages in a conversation. And he's talking. And Sonny, you can see the look in his face. He's like, man, you got to get out of here. So do I have to watch my language here or what? Uh, you know, you could clean it up a little bit if you would. <laughs> okay. We're all grown-ups here. <laughs> so I said, uh, I said to the guy, I said, come here. I said, look, get the fuck out of here. Don't you see the FBI agents over there? And uh, that's how easy it was for him to get violated. Because they, everyone he knew, yeah, they knew him. He knew them. Even if he didn't know them, they walk up to him. But he never pays the check. 
<laughs> he never pays a check. <laughs> Somebody paid it, but it wasn't him, right? He never pays a check. Yeah. Sandra, they didn't bother to give him a check. And at a lot of places, they didn't bother to give him a check. And, and one of the things, I, I want to make this point, and, and Dan has made this, what made Sonny different from other wise guys was he didn't care if you were black, white, gay, straight, male, or female. If he thought you could be of use to him, he was all in. Yeah. Sandra, talk I mean, about yeah. the surveillance on Sonny every single time he was on the street, uh, and he did so many years in jail. Uh, even when he was 93 years old, they put him back in jail. But talk about the levels, because I know you interviewed a lot of the FBI agents who worked this case. Uh, it's been the Newsday documentary. I'm sure it's in the book. Um, Talk about the level of surveillance and how badly the FBI wanted to keep an eye on Sonny. <laughs> well, they had they had a lot of surveillance. It wasn't round the clock, like the, as the family claims, because they just didn't have the resources to do it round the clock. Right. But they made they made it very visible. So um, neighbors of the Francis's, I feel one night there was a, it may have been Michael's graduation party. Mm -hmm. John and his friend wanted to get out of the party for a while, and they run down the street. Both John, who is Sonny's youngest son, and the friend, the neighbor, told me this story. They go down to the corner, and they see this car, and there are these two guys dressed in suits, and there's a machine gun on the back seat. <laughs> and one of them points to it and says to John, this is for your father. Uh. They made it very, very obvious that they were doing it. When he walked around, and he was always very careful. He had two separate phone lines in his house, and he was always very careful when he spoke on the phone. Whenever he took Michael uh, into his confidence, when Michael got active in the family, Michael is his um, uh, stepson with right. his second wife, his, his, and later he adopted him. But whenever he took Michael into his confidence, he would go into the bathroom, turn on the water, and then he would talk because yeah. he was so careful. He never used the same payphone twice. Very, very careful. But law enforcement was there constantly. And he had this other trick that I loved that a lot of guys told me about. He would go meet someone and he loved little coffee shops and diners. And he would go meet someone in a little coffee shop. They'd sit down, he'd take off his jacket, he'd order his food, and then he would leave to go to the men's room. And then he, and the person, and he would be in the men's room for a long time. He'd be sitting there. But of course, with Sonny, you didn't get up and leave. You waited. <laughs> and in fact, he was climbing out the window, walking down to the end of the strip mall, meeting with his guys and doing business. And then he would come back and go back into his meeting with this person, which was all for the benefit of the agents who were following him. Yeah. I think I heard one of the agents say that he actually walked out of the house a couple of times and brought coffee to the guys sitting on surveillance on him down the block and would say hello, kind of, how you guys doing today? Hey, here's a cup of coffee, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he was not one of these mobsters who covered his face. You know what? You see all these pictures from the 60s and the 70s where guys, their pictures being taken and they're covering their face with a newspaper or a jacket. Sonny never did. Yeah. He'd always look straight at him and smile. Yeah. And in fact, one time he was walking out of a, a Madison Square Garden. It was um, Muhammad Ali, who was then known as Cassius Clay, was in a fight. And he, he was a big boxing fan, so he watched it. And he was walking out, and he was with this young uh, songwriter's wife. And he turned to her, and he said, 
now look pretty because they're going to take my picture. So he, he, he knew how to roll with it. Yeah. Dan, you got a story like that uh, about surveillances or maybe that you saw or that Sonny told you about, or you've heard uh, through the years of knowing the family. uh, Surveillance was always there. You get in the car, they got in the car, got out of the car. They got out of the car. I mean, the surveillance was there. You, 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 it became second nature. You just got used to it, you know? Um, you know, the guy was a, um, he was a physical fitness freak also, you know? He, he took care of himself like you can't believe. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the way he ate, he wasn't a drinker, he wasn't a smoker. Um, Handball you know, player, you know, right? Handball player. You know, it's funny because I was a fighter, and he, he always reminded me of, of Rocky Graziano. Mm. He looked alike to me. Yeah. But, I mean, overall, for me, when I think of Sonny, I have warm thoughts. I have very warm thoughts. Because without Sonny, to be quite honest, I wouldn't be successful. Mm. He wouldn't know me. Yeah. So, so today... Doors open for me because I knew him. I love the guy. Yeah. I love the family. You know, and they treated me very well. So, but I know on the other side who he was. Mm. I mean, you know, in our conversations, you knew who he was and what he was capable of. And he was capable of everything, yeah. of the most heinous. But that's where he came from, and that's where he grew up in, and that's what he was. Yeah. Sandra, one thing he wasn't capable of was flipping and cooperating with the government, and he spent 50 years in jail, and I'm sure he was approached. Dan probably knows stories about this, too. He probably was approached a dozen or so times probably by the feds, maybe more, to cooperate. Let me put it to you you this way. Sandra can explain it. The Witness Protection Program? You can take it from there, Sandra. <laughs> well, the Witness Protection Program was started because of Sonny Francis. There was a trucking company on Long Island that was making a lot of money, and Sonny always looked for businesses that were making money. And one day, a few guys went to that trucker and said, Sonny Francis wants to be your partner. And he said, I don't need a partner. Get out of here. And in the next couple of days, he found sand in the carburetors of a couple of his new trucks, and he cleaned it out and didn't think anything of it. Right. And then a couple of days after that, four guys came in with baseball bats and beat him up, and he wound up in the hospital. And in the hospital, he signed over his business to Sonny. But he got mad, and he spoke to a friend who was an IRS agent and said, right. this isn't right. Mm-hmm. And so the IRS agent hooked him up with a guy named Gerald Schur, who was a, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Justice Department at the time. And they said, great, you got to testify. And the guy said, testify? I can't testify. If I testify, they'll kill me and my family. And so from that incident, the idea for witness protection was born. Mm. And they created it. But years later, that very same program would come back to haunt Sonny in a way that he never expected. Uh, But it just was not the way it, it was not a part of his DNA to cooperate with law enforcement at all, even despite 50 years in prison and going back to prison at 93. 
he was approached multiple times and I asked him about that. And he said, look, I just couldn't do it. I, he goes, I, I wouldn't put a dog in jail. He hated jail. Mm. And while he was in prison, he saw his family unravel and it really killed him. He desperately wanted to be out and make sure, take care of his family. Mm. But if the price was rolling, he wouldn't do it. Yeah. And he didn't. The sad part is two of his sons did. Yeah, We're going to talk about that in, in our second show. Dan, I, I see you chomping at the bit there. You want to say something about uh, Sonny right there? I mean, you know, they didn't just go after Sonny. They went after whoever was, whoever was around him. I mean, I was approached many times by the FBI and um, New York City, NYPD, organized crime. And I even got caught up getting, giving some, getting someone a job. And uh, the person got upset with me mm. and went and rolled on me. And they were trying to get me arrested. Mm. And the only way I got arrested was when the person says, well, you know, he's with Sonny Francis. Next thing you know, I'm locked up. I'm in court. The court officer comes over to me and he says, uh, who are you? I'm like, what do you mean? He said, you see the first two rows there? They're here for you. They're here for you. So it wasn't easy being a friend, with, a friend to him because it was also costly. Mm. It was costly because now you're on, now you're on your target. You're on radar. And if they can get you the right way, that's when they try to get you to roll on him. Mm. But that's my man, and that's that, and I'm here, and I'm here because of him. Mm. I'm here because of him, and that's why I'm making a movie on him. Yeah. That's why we got a book on him. Yeah. I believe in Sonny Francis. That's my guy. Yeah. Sandra, um, kind of uh, quantify for me, if you can, uh, in the history of mafia lore in New York. Uh, everybody always remembers John Gotti and the most was made out of him because of the media and that kind of stuff. But I, I've heard, and I think I, I saw it in the documentary and maybe Dan's said it to me once or twice that even John Gotti revered Sonny Frances, respected the guy, knew not to mess with the guy. Well, he was heard on a wiretap, according to Ed McDonald, who was head of the Organized Crime Strike Force. Mm -hmm. He was heard on a, a wiretap saying, Sonny Francis, he's one tough effing guy. He's one tough guy. He had real admiration for him. And that was one of the things that I found very striking because the street guys I talked to and the people in law enforcement both respected him. Mm -hmm. And that's unusual. You don't see that a lot with these kind of guys. You know, law enforcement, you know, they don't they don't like wise guys and wise guys don't like people in law enforcement. But everybody had a deep respect for Sonny, for his toughness, his fairness to the people who worked for him and just his his smarts. Yeah. He was he was one of the things that we haven't talked about is how he was involved in negotiating peace settlements within the Colombo family, because it was a very fractious yeah. uh, family with lots of internecine wars. And Sonny very often was the peacemaker who got things settled because people trusted him. Yeah. You can also tell him about the relationship that Sonny had between himself, Anastasia, and uh, Vito Genovese. Yeah, they both, they both admired Sonny when he was young and on the streets. And he told a very funny story where he got caught between Genovese and Anastasia. They were having kind of a turf war. 
And he shuttled between the two of them and he had to keep it very cool. And, you know, he managed to smooth things over and then he had to go back to his own crew and they wanted to know what was going on. Why is he talking to these guys? And he couldn't tell them Mm -hmm. it would have been a violation. And so he had to dance around that. But as a result of these negotiations, uh, Sonny earned real respect and Vito Genovese backed him the rest of his career. Yeah. Dan, tell me about his respect on the street up in New York. Uh, it, it went beyond New York. I can tell you that even here to Philadelphia. But uh, tell Listen. me about that respect level for him as a mob underboss. Respect is an understatement. Fear. The title, the title underboss is an understatement. Listen. I've sat down with Fortune 500 company, companies, uh, CEOs because of Sonny Francis. There's a particular network. I'm not going to say the name. And the CEO of that network was Sonny's guy. He even gave Sonny's son a no-show job, but the son never even showed up for the no-show job. <laughs> So again, uh, I've been in music, sports, film, television, books. Everything I was in, the door opened for me because of my relationship with Sonny Francis. If there was a problem and they knew you were Sonny, ask Steven Seagal what Sonny Francis means to his life. Yeah. Ask James Kahn. What Sonny Francis means in his life. There are a lot of people like us. And uh, even when you think of the Godfather, again, I I, uh, I defer to Sandra to explain that. The guy is, was a legend, and that's how his story has to be told, because he was a legend. Was he a bad guy? He was the ultimate bad guy. The ultimate bad guy. But guess what? We like bad guys. It's just America's fascination. Yeah. Sandra, finish it, finish it up with that story about the Godfather for us, and then because we'll, we're going to do another half-hour show, uh, talk about a whole bunch more. But finish the first part of the show up with that. Well, I, I'm sure a lot of people know that The Godfather was filmed in New York City in the early 1970s. The, the 50th anniversary is going to be uh, in March. And when the producers were... Uh, filming at locations that were already approved, all of a sudden they found themselves getting blocked because Joe Colombo used the Italian-American League to uh, protest what he said was uh, prejudice against Italians in the movie. So they had to have a sit down and they agreed to hire some extras from the who were Colombo associates and they also agreed to make regular payments. And Sonny who was in prison at the time, uh, got some of those payments as a consultant. Mm. He denied it, but people around him all said, oh, no, 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 Sonny, Sonny was one of the ones who got the money. He also believed he was the inspiration for the character of Sonny, the oldest son. Uh, he said Joe Bananas, Joe Banano, whom he hated, uh, planted the seed with Mario Puzo because he was trying to make him look bad because yeah. he was jealous of Sonny. Hey guys, and that's the other thing about the mafia. There are all yeah. these petty jealousies that you wouldn't expect, but they were there, and they would have often fatal consequences. Well, for my 35 years of covering the organized crime, I would agree there was a lot of little petty things that drive 
organized crime figures, mob guys, crazy. At the end of the day, that can be an undoing every once in a while. Hey, listen, uh, I want to have you guys back for a second show. Uh, you blew it at, you blew it right off the top here f- uh, for part one. Uh, and I greatly appreciate you guys coming on the show, Sandra. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to this book. I'm already pumping it up with all my friends, all my mob watcher <laughs> friends. Uh, and I'll promote it a little bit on mobtalksitdown.com, our website, and here on Philly Prime. And Dan, uh, as always, you and I uh, have been friends probably for the last five or six years or so. And, uh, a lot of projects that you uh, talk about and we talk about and guys we know we talk about. But I appreciate both of you coming on and stick around. We're going to talk uh, for part two. We're going to talk a little bit about Sonny and his sons and uh, cooperation and uh, kind of his legacy going forward. But thanks for joining the show again, folks. That's Philly Prime for this week. Thanks for joining us. And do not forget to come back for the second part of this. 